Welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, RFERL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, and my guest today is Mark Galliotti, an analyst of Russian politics, honorary professor at the UCL School of Slavonic and East European Studies in London, and the author of several books, including We Need to Talk About Putin, The Weaponization of Everything, and Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine. Thanks very much for joining me today, Mark. Always a pleasure. All right. It's great to have you on the show again. Now, just a note about the format. Um, a couple of months ago, uh, we stopped conducting this podcast on X. Um, instead, we are recording it in the studio. Uh, this is a return to past practice, but we are now um, inviting listeners to submit questions in advance on the topics at hand. Uh, and as before, you can subscribe to The Week Ahead in Russia on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, now, uh, I have three questions uh, for you today, Mark, uh, fairly broad topics. The first um, is about the war in Ukraine and specifically about reports. There's a report in the Wall Street Journal um, last week saying that Russia had withdrawn much of its Black Sea fleet uh, from its main base in Sevastopol, Crimea, amid persistent Ukrainian missile and drone attacks uh, on the Russian-occupied peninsula. Um, uh, I, I, I should mention that uh, apparently there have been there's been satellite imagery since then that may indicate that uh, Russian warships have returned to the Black Sea Fleet base in Sevastopol. Um, so uh, that's another uh, apparent development. Now, for context, uh, I will mention a remark from historian Stephen Kotkin in a recent interview in The New Yorker. Kotkin said that, quote, Ukraine has done some things that are just breathtaking. They've managed to neutralize the Russian Black Sea Fleet without having a navy of their own. Unquote. And I'm pretty sure he said this before the reports um, pointing to a withdrawal of Russian warships um, appeared in, in the journal and other media outlets. But again, I'll mention apparently there have been reports now uh, that, that warships have returned there. Uh, so it's not a very straightforward um, issue. But Mark, what, what would you say about these reported developments? How, how important uh, would it be if uh, you know, if Russia has in fact withdrawn or withdrawing the bulk of its Black Sea fleet uh, from Sevastopol. Does it suggest Ukraine uh, could take Crimea back in the foreseeable future? Well, look, first of all, I should say that I'm actually very pleased and relieved that neither the Ukrainians nor their allies are seriously assuming that the Black Sea fleet has been neutralized for their own planning assumptions, because it hasn't. Yes, of course, it's an embarrassment to Moscow every time Ukrainian missiles, drones and the like manage to penetrate their multi-layer defences around Crimea. And certainly Sevastopol is no longer the safe haven that they thought. And so they, they have been moving ships, again, whether it's only temporary or whatever, but certainly they've been moving ships instead to their base at Novorossiysk, rather further away. And there's talk of them setting up a, a new base actually in Abkhazia, on the Abkhaz coast at Ochamchire. 
That said, look, this is absolutely still a force in being. I mean, let's just take a look. I mean, yes, they, they lost their flagship, the cruiser Moskva. Tremendously embarrassing and an extraordinary feat by the Ukrainians. Beyond that, they have lost one of their various corvettes, of their 21 corvettes. They lost various uh, auxiliaries and sort of landing ships and the like, as well as one of five submarines. But they, for example, still have all four of their frigates. I mean, this is still a perfectly effective force, especially because it, it actually also has, I mean, the Black Sea Fleet is a, an all-arms force, frankly. It has marines, it has air assets and the like. And it's no longer in a position to control the Black Sea fleet, Black Sea, even if it ever was truly, but certainly in terms of its capacity to strike at targets within the sea and along the coast from missiles, from the air, from submarines and the like is still there. So, you know, again, we have to keep this in context. And I say this not to in any way deny the Ukrainians their successes, but precisely because I, I do worry we have a tendency in our Western coverage to leap on any signs of Ukrainian victory or success, rather, and build it up into something momentous and pivotal and groundbreaking and war winning. And then when it becomes clear that actually the war goes on and will continue to go on, the pendulum has a tendency to swing the other way and there's an overcorrection and people are saying, and this is why it's a forever war and the like. So let's keep this in context. Let's accept that Ukrainians are absolutely making successes that we hadn't anticipated and certainly the Russians hadn't anticipated. They are doing so you know, without having a navy of their own, let's be clear, because the Russians had sunk or captured their, their navy um, and it you know it's all part of a, a story of slow accretional Ukrainian victories but let's not think it's more than that in terms of the impact on Crimea again I'm, obviously I'm, I'm here to be the, the, the voice of misery um, it doesn't really impact Crimea whether or not the Black Sea Fleet is there or not what does affect Crimea is clearly the fact that, as I say, the Ukrainians are continuing to find ways through the, the Russian air and sea defences. And that, that does say something, because look, Crimea is not likely to be taken by storm. We're not going to necessarily see Ukrainian forces you know, pouring through the Perekop Peninsula, the Isthmus rather, um, into the peninsula and, and so forth forth it's much more likely to fall to what is in effect siege that if the ukrainians are able to break the land bridge and then the, the crimean bridge which would be a lot easier they can essentially make crimea pretty much not indefensible in military terms but you know impossible to sustain because how do you get reinforcements in how do you get rearmament in and such like and if you can also breach the air defences and continue to use long-range missiles, particularly these Anglo-French storm shadows, which have been deployed so effectively of late, to strike at logistical targets, command centres and the like. This is exactly what, what's happening at the moment within Crimea. You further degrade the capacity to, to hold this peninsula. So, I mean, I think this, this is part of, again, the long-term strategy, that Crimea, if and when it's going to be retaken, is going to be taken by siege. And in that respect, 
the Ukrainians are demonstrating that at the moment, at least, they certainly have the capacities which will help them maintain and deepen that siege. All right. Thanks very much, Mark. Uh, 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 very instructive to hear about, for, for me particularly, about kind of the relationship or, or, or not very strong relationship between, um, you know, how much uh, the Black Sea fleet is, you know, whether it's based in Sevastopol or Novorossiysk and, and, and the actual, um, uh, the prospects for Ukraine um, taking, retaking Crimea. Uh, now, my second question uh, is about Western support for Ukraine. I think this is something that's, I mean, obviously it's in the news um, all the time, uh, and this is uh, only going to uh, continue and perhaps uh, uh, be more be more forceful as the election approaches in the in the United States. Um, it's been said uh, that Putin's or Russia's last hope or only hope or, of prevailing in the war is for Western support, including weapons supplies, to fade substantially or to collapse. So I want to ask you where things stand uh, after two or actually now uh, three major developments uh, in the West uh, or internationally. Um, the background on, in Slovakia on September 30th, I believe, voters handed a party that has promised to stop military supplies to Ukraine a plurality of the vote in an election that's likely to return former Prime Minister Robert Fico to power. Um, now, he employed anti-Ukrainian rhetoric, praised Moscow, and uh, questioned the logic of EU sanctions against Russia uh, during his p- campaign and, and, and at other times, I believe. Now, uh, near the end of that same day, uh, this was the last Saturday, not this past Saturday, um, funding for, uh, uh, this in Washington, sorry, funding for financial, military, and other aid to Ukraine was abandoned. Uh, the, I'm talking about new funding, um, was abandoned in a push, a uh, successful push to pass last-minute legislation on spending and avert a shutdown of the U.S. government, though uh, the threat of a shutdown will return very soon in mid-November. Now, adding to the uncertainty, uh, the Republican Speaker of the House of Representatives, Kevin McCarthy, was ousted a few days later. uh, And that that added to questions about uh, the the fate of aid to Ukraine because he had been expected uh, to seek separate legislation on on that, um, President Joe Biden was you know insistently saying, "I hope he will keep his uh, you know keep his his commitment to doing so." So that that obviously uh, throws throws the situation into into you know throws additional clouds on the situation. Mark, what do you, and, and now of course um, there is the uh, the violence, the war uh, in Israel after the the Hamas attack on Israel um, this Saturday. Um, and that is, uh, you know, a huge development in the Middle East and is certain to uh, draw a lot of, well, attract a lot of attention in the U.S. and elsewhere. And um, presumably, in my opinion, draw attention away from, um, you know, from the prospect of, of further of future aid to Ukraine. So, Mark, what, what do you think? How important are these developments? Uh, is Western aid to Ukraine in jeopardy? 
I very much question whether we should seriously think that it's in jeopardy. But look, to start with the most basic point, yes, this absolutely is very important. It is crucial for Ukraine. Ukrainians may well be willing to fight without Western assistance, but how effectively they will be able to do that depends to a huge extent on the military aid being given. And more to the point, or at least as important, is the financial assistance, which is basically allowing the Ukrainian economy to survive. So yes, this does matter. It also matters in the sense of Putin's own morale. I mean, I do believe that for him, precisely his best chance of securing something that he can spin as a victory from this situation depends exactly on some kind of weakening of Western support for Ukraine and probably overt or covert pressure on Kyiv to reach some kind of a deal with Russia. So in that respect, he feels that he wins for the moment by not losing, by basically hoping to outlast Ukraine's capacity to fight and the West's will to continue to spend billions every month supporting it. Now, in that context, anything that encourages him Anything that gives him that sense, and remember, he's probably being briefed by people who are trying to be as uh, upbeat as possible because they've learned that Putin doesn't like being given bad news. Anyway, anything that makes him think that just over the horizon there will be some fracturing of Western will to support Ukraine gives him all the more incentive to basically dig in for the meantime because you know he, he can think that he has hope. Because hope is, is crucial in this respect. And unfortunately, so long as we have things like the Slovak election result or the turmoil in the United States, or indeed Poland's decision to stop sending new equipment to Ukraine because of a spat over agricultural exports, you know, all, all of this helps make him think that things are heading the right direction. Broadly speaking, I mean, I think it, it really does bring up the fact that this is a constant political struggle. Yes, we have all the rhetoric about the fact that the West is you know, in it as long as it takes, will provide Ukraine whatever it needs, etc., etc. We surely do not need to be reminded that politicians' rhetoric does not deserve to be taken at face value. Behind the rhetoric, I mean, it is clear that there's a whole variety of different concerns. There are countries which absolutely are you know, solidly foursquare behind Ukraine's struggle. There are countries that, frankly, regard this as a distraction from what they regard as perhaps greater security concerns. You know, if, if you are in Italy or Spain in particular, and Greece as well, actually what's happening in the south, in other words, in North Africa, or indeed what's happening in the southeast now, in, in the Middle East, you know, pose much more immediate security challenges. There are also many politicians, especially those who are beginning to look at their electoral re-election prospects, who could think of all, all kinds of, as they would think of it, better things that they could do with millions or even billions of, of money that otherwise is going to Ukraine. So you know, this, this is something that, that cannot be taken for granted. Yes, of course, everyone says there's no such thing as Ukraine fatigue. There is. And therefore, that's something that both Ukraine's friends and allies, but also Ukraine itself needs to address. And I think this is the second broad point, is that Ukrainian diplomacy, which was so astonishingly effective in the earlier stages of the war, I mean, Zelensky really did sort of flourish as the kind of super ambassador of, of Ukraine. And you had so many Western leaders, frankly, being almost pathetic 
tactic in their desperation to get a photo op with with, with the man in the khaki t-shirt has proven to be a little bit less sure-footed of late. Uh, as, I, as I mentioned, I mean, if one thinks of the, the, the troubles with Poland, I have to say, I think to a large extent, this was a self-inflicted wound on, on, on the part of Kyiv in terms of how it handled what are, you know, actually entirely plausible concerns that, that, that Warsaw had about it, its farming and so forth. And, and I mean, if I go back to the, the former British Secretary of State, Ben Wallace, who, again, absolutely, there's no question but that of his support for Ukraine. But nonetheless, you know, when he said that we're not Amazon, I think he was actually trying as a friend to to emphasize this point that Ukraine cannot just simply expect to just present its shopping lists of what it wants and assume that it, it, it'll be met with overnight delivery. Um, you know, that in fact, Ukraine has to continue to address not just governments, but also populations, and explain to them why this matters. In terms of the actual coalition, though, look, it, the United States is still the crucial component of this. I mean, in aggregate terms, the European Union is now currently providing or pledging at least more aid than the United States. But as a country, the United States clearly is dominant. And in particular, it's the United States that can provide the kind of military capabilities that Europe in particular is really struggling to provide. Now, I don't think that we are going to see some dramatic decline in U.S. aid being provided. There's talk about President Biden trying to sort of have a kind of, you know, one deal and you're done sort of arrangement. Although there is a very vociferous minority within the American political elite that is arguing against the blank check for Ukraine. On balance, it seems to be there is enough of probably a consensus. You know, it, it got caught in much wider political struggles over the overall budget, over the ruinous level of the national debt and over the future of the speaker. Um, but I think once actually it, this becomes specifically about Ukraine, I, I think it will be dealt with. But again, it, it really does emphasize the degree to which actually America matters, which clearly has significance, given that there are going to be presidential elections next year. And again, you know, regardless of whether or not Trump stands or even wins, the prospect that maybe there will be some dramatic political change in Washington which might well actually mean an end to or a limitation of aid. Again, is something that definitely has, has Putin and his cronies salivating. Final point on Israel and the, the appalling uh, surprise attack by Hamas. First thing to say is there's a lot of loose talk. As far as I can see, there is absolutely no evidence of a Russian role here. We've some people saying, oh, well, you know, Hamas couldn't do this without training, and uh, I'm sure Wagner was involved or similar. Well, obviously, Wagner is the current folk devil of, of the moment that is always invoked whenever anything bad happens. In practice, from Russia's point of view, a certain steady state of chaos in the Middle East is not a bad thing. It gives them leverage. But actually, Russia has pretty decent relations with Israel. Um, Hamas is more than anything else an instrument of Iran and although there are you know positive relations between Russia and Iran in terms of sanctions busting we should remember that particularly when it comes to Middle Eastern politics actually Russia and Iran are at best frenemies they are rivals for, for supremacy we've seen that in, in Syria as well 
Um, so, you know, I, I definitely don't think that, that the Russians uh, have any role here. But absolutely, it really does highlight the degree to which the West is overstretched. I mean, back back in the day, in the US, US military planning was to be able to fight two or two and a half wars at the same time. Well, the interesting thing is that actually what we've discovered is crises, especially open-ended crises like this one, are in some ways even even harder to, to, to manage and sustain. If, for example, it's perceived that there is a need to provide additional military assistance to, to Israel, where is that going to come from? If there needs to be financial assistance and just general kind of political bandwidth. So I think this is going to be a, a worrying time for everyone i mean the you know, it's clear that the the unprovoked and vicious hamas attack is going to you know is already triggering a, a very serious israeli response you know, we may all see I mean, some people are calling for an occupation of, of gaza and such like anything that creates additional strains and tensions within not just the global community but particularly the west which is possible you know is implicitly helps Russia. But as I say, I think, A, we shouldn't overplay this, and B, we certainly shouldn't assume that that means that Russia had any role in it. All right. Thanks very much, Mark. Uh, I'm just going to touch on or touch off on a couple of of your points. Um, this isn't a, a question, really. Um, you mentioned attention in Italy, Spain, and Greece, uh, you know, on the south, the security threats or perceived... Um, I would say that's also the case in the U.S., and that's part of the, you know, that's part of the kind of uh, the broader uh, debate or um, that that uh, involves aid to Ukraine with, with um, the Republicans and others saying, you know, we need to protect uh, protect the southern border with Mexico and you're here. Uh, trying to protect the, the Ukraine's borders. So that's sort of another I mean, obviously not. Uh, it's a it's a bit of a different issue, but um, somewhat similar. And you mentioned um, also back on the U.S. You mentioned uh, you know rhetoric, political rhetoric. You know can't be really taken as face value or, or trusted to to result in in action. Um, and in the U.S., I think with with Bi- with President Biden, even the rhetoric you know has been criticized. Um, he and in terms of. Um, the administration saying, you know, we're in it as long as it takes. Uh, but a lot of people are calling on him to make a case that the war in Ukraine is really a, is, you know, is a serious national security uh, uh, issue and threat f- for the United States. So to make that case strongly. And now um, he said a few days ago that he would he would do this essentially in a speech uh, soon. So that's another you know, another element in, in what's going to go into the the debate and and the machinations in the U.S. over over um, you know the, the the future in the in the coming week and weeks and months of of aid to Ukraine. Um, all right, and now my third question. This is a change of pace. Um, third question is about the plane crash that killed Yevgeny Prigozhin on August twenty third. Two months after his Wagner forces launched a mutiny that brought some of them within 200 kilometers of Moscow before Prigozhin abruptly called off the rebellion uh, under a murky deal with the Kremlin. The plane, that was a private jet 
crashed in the Tver region between Moscow and St. Petersburg. Uh, and there's been no conclusive official word on the cause. Now, last week, Putin um, claimed, and you know, sometimes Putin and uh, his spokesman declined to comment on things like this, saying, well, there's an investigation going on. We can't comment, ask the investigators. But in this case, Putin was happy to, to say that he had learned from the investigative committee um, that fragments of hand, of hand grenades were found in the bodies of those killed in the crash. And he suggested uh, that Prigozhin and perhaps others on board had been doing drugs uh, before the flight, or, or I guess on the flight, though he specified that no tests that could ter- determine that had been conducted. He um, alleged that, I guess, five, I forget the amount, but large amounts of cocaine had been found at the um, uh, Wagner offices. Now, and he made a big show of, of saying, it's okay for me to tell you this. I asked the investigative committee, uh, and they said, it's fine. This is this is fact. You know, so uh, very, very much a, a kind of a choreographed statement um, about what he claimed, um, you know, with, with no no evidence beyond his assertion that this is what was found, um, you know, no evidence to back it up. Uh, so, Mark, what's what's your take on, on, on this claim by Putin? Uh, could anything about it be true? That's one question. And what might have been uh, his motive for making such a statement? Yeah, I mean, in terms of could anything about it be true? I was about to say no, except I suppose one could suggest that uh, grenade fragments could just as easily be fragments from an explosive device planted on the plane. That currently seems to be the most uh, plausible scenario for, for what happened, that, that it was a bomb. And look, if nothing else, I mean, when if one takes the fact that, yes, five kilos of cocaine were allegedly found when the FSB raided the uh, headquarters of the Concord Group, Prigozhin's sort of holding company. I mean, it wouldn't exactly be the first time that the authorities planted some suitable evidence because it sort of makes it sound much, much more exciting when you talk about, you know, huge amounts of money and, and, and drugs being found. There's certainly been no suggestion that, that Prigozhin himself samples those wares. And indeed, Prigozhin and uh, Utkin, his, his senior figure in Wagner, were both known not to drink. And in fact, Prigozhin, despite the, the fact that uh, Russian, rich Russians' private jets tend to be sort of opulent palaces of vice with wings, you know, he was well known to actually have a, a strong edict that they, they could, there should be no alcohol at all on the planes when he flew, especially because essentially he regarded these long flights as opportunities to work. So, you know, it, it is a very, very dubious suggestion that they, they were you know, drunk, coked up and, I don't know, playing Russian roulette with hand grenades while at high altitude. And in terms of a motive for making such a statement, look, we've seen this before. We've seen it, for example, with the suggestion that the would-be assassins who went to Salisbury were there to admire the glories of, its, of the cathedral spire rather than to try and murder Sergei Skripal with Novichok poison. I mean, arguably, we, we've seen it with the suggestion that Russian forces went into Ukraine to free it from the neo-Nazis, which has somehow managed to pervade and control it from top to bottom 
without the rest of the world noticing. This is the sort of classic Russian Vranyo, which is, again, it's quite significant that there is no real direct translation into English. It's, it's the barefaced lie that is not meant to be believed, that is precisely delivered with the knowing wink and an, a sort of nod to the facts. You know, it's saying basically, I will lie about this blatantly. And there's nothing you can do about it except essentially accept it. In other words, it's about power. It's about performing power and more or less saying, see, you know, I, 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 can, I can treat you with in some ways the contempt of not even trying to give you something that's halfway plausible. So, I mean, I think in a way that that was Putin's motive. He was basically using this as an opportunity to once again assert his power. Um, and I think it's interesting that also it comes at the same time as the claims, which are totally uh, unverified so far, but the claims that Prigozhin's only son, Pavel, may well be taking over Wagner. And I'm thinking, look, if you're actually going to be allowing someone to take over the mantle of mercenary commander, even if in much more controlled circumstances, do you really want to be at the same time publicly saying, oh, by the way, your dad was a, a suicidal druggie? I don't know. Um, but I think in this case, you know, actually, Putin likes to have one or two um, really newsworthy little sort of tidbits in his Valdai performances. Because that, 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 that's where he was speaking. And the interesting thing about Valdai these days is it used to be a gathering which would bring in a lot of Western academics and experts and pundits. Clearly, a, a distinctly minimalist uh, supply of outsiders these days. So, you know, in, instead, Putin wanted something that, that I imagine that was that was he knew was, was going to be sort of widely reported. And and this is what he chose. Beyond that, I, I, I find it hard to know quite what wider purpose this this was. Did he actually think this this would put the story to bed? I mean, may, maybe so. Did he actually think this would undermine the clear myth and legend that there is now built up? The kind of a, a little, I couldn't really call it a cult, but shall we say some, some small sect around uh, Prigozhin, whether it's these little sort of shrines that have cropped up in, in different towns, or the fact that he's still being sort of talked about a lot on Russian Z Patriot social media sort of type things. Maybe he thought that. I suspect in, in many ways it will backfire. But then again, didn't ask me first. Absolutely. I, uh, I mean, some really, really great points there, I think. Um, I, I think the last thing he said, my guess is that Putin does think things he can, he will say can have an effect on, you know, the people who are, who, um, you know, are fans of Prigozhin. You know, so that's my guess is that that might actually, yes, be part of the part of the motive uh, to kind of to really, you know, try to paint him this way. But but as you say, um, that could that could backfire um, because presumably his his uh, view or his his view of this is is skewed. Um, I also think, you know, from what you said, I hadn't really thought of this, but um the idea of, of the blatant lie and sort of the, the contempt, um, you know, I think that must must have probably been a strong part 
part of 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 his motives for saying this. Um, and I also think that that element of potential truth that you know there was fragments of an explosive device uh, in the bodies, you know that maybe that is the case, and that's the part of it that he's trying to kind of acknowledge. Um, you know, and at the same time, that would uh, go against you know any idea that that the that the plane was was shot down by Russian forces. Um, so uh, thanks very much, uh, really, for the for that assessment um, um, and for for the description of of his comments. Um, now we are getting short on time. Um, uh, we do have, I think, time for one question uh, that came in. Now this is not. It's uh, not really on any of the topics at hand, but um, it's a bit broader. Um, so the question is, um, the listener is uh, Lindsay Thompson. This question came via X. Um, uh, Lindsay Thompson says, uh, Mark uh, Galliotti often presents an optimistic view on Russia's future. How is he able to maintain this when late-stage Putinism is so bleak and lacking in ideas? It's an excellent question, and for me the answer would be I'm optimistic precisely because late-stage Putinism is so bleak and lacking in ideas. I mean, I think this, again, we go back to this, this crucial point about hope. I do think hope is one of the you know, most fundamental drivers of human nature, and, and thus, therefore, politics. And the interesting thing is that for much of Putin's reign, he has had some kind of a positive image of Russia, of the future, that he was able to sell to Russians. Now, you know, whether or not he was being genuine in that, we can set to one side at the moment. And I think the answer is actually he, he partially was. I mean, obviously, to a large extent, this was about pacifying Russians so he and his mates could continue to embezzle on an industrial scale and to simply enjoy the fruits of power. But nonetheless, I think there was this sense that actually, you know, Russia could evolve as a distinctive type of civilization, one which can at once sort of hold its head up in the international community, but at the same time could be prosperous and peaceful. And again, I think it's it's worth noting the irony that although most years of Putin's reign, and I'm including the Medvedev sort of puppet presidency time, most of those years Russia has been at war domestically or internationally, overt or covert. Nonetheless, peace actually did remain a leitmotif of, of many of his statements. Now that's gone, and I, I do think that I think in, in hindsight probably we will decide that the short and sour speech that he delivered at this year's Victory Day Parade will really be one of the sort of key insights into not just his own thinking, but in a way the, the, the vision of the future that he was offering Russia, which was not about victories at all. It was about essentially eternal conflict. It was about the fact that Russia is beleaguered and essentially has to militarize and accept whatever costs in order to maintain its, its status as a truly sovereign, autonomous power. Again, absolutely bleak and absolutely really with, with no new ideas. Because it just simply more or less says, so just you know, shut up, suffer, do what the state expects you to do. This offers 
people nothing. And I think this is one of the reasons why we are seeing all kinds of indices to suggest that actually the state is losing its, its traction on the the minds, the hopes, the dreams, the aspirations of most Russians. And it having to rely instead on the usual instruments of a police state, violence, threat, rigged elections and such like. This is, none of this, none of this creates a sustainable polity. You know, if, if Putin had instead been able to institutionalize sort of his, his system earlier, if he had not engaged in this awful and catastrophic invasion of Ukraine, and frankly, if he'd also stepped down and created some kind of mechanism for succession, again, at an earlier point, then actually we could see the prospect that the Putinist system could replicate and revive itself and operate intergenerationally. As is, I think it's very clear that, you know, although you know, in the immediate term, as and when Putin dies, is, you know, hands over to a successor, is forced out of office, whatever happens, you know, it, it may briefly look, look quite similar, depending on who takes over and how. But nonetheless, you know, I do think that we have seen Putinism reach this moribund state. It cannot evolve. It cannot continue beyond sort of how, how long the police state can keep it artificially in zombie-like manifest. So that is why I'm optimistic, because I, I don't think this is a system which can survive. And although in the short term it is ghastly, obviously you know, it, it's horrendous for the Ukrainians who are suffering its malice, it's also pretty ghastly for a lot of Russians. But nonetheless, it will die and something new will emerge. And I'm optimistic about the something new in the long term. Oh, Mark, thanks so much. That's, uh, I mean, that did turn out to be a good question and, and a great answer. Um, you know, I think really kind of forward-looking, um, uh, the idea that I, I, I risk uh, stating it uh, not as clearly as you did, but, uh, you know, there were certain points, well, for one thing, that uh, speech indeed, even though he was to some degree just repeating things, um, and the, the Victory Day speech was, was quite remarkable. Uh, in terms of how kind of little it had to offer, as you say. And um, the idea that at there were several points when he could have stepped down, uh, you know, obviously uh, stepped down, not returned, not uh, changed the Constitution to allow him to return, uh, you know, for, for subsequent terms. Uh, and he did not do so. Um, and... You know that may be the, the kind of fateful the fateful decisions, um, but uh, Mark, uh, thanks very much for that, uh, and let's wrap it up here. Uh, appreciate it. Thanks for joining me. Oh, my pleasure, and thanks, Lindsay, for the interesting question. All right. Uh, once again, I've been speaking to Mark Galliotti, an analyst of Russian politics, an honorary professor at the School of Slavonic and East European Studies at University College London and the author of several books, including We Need to Talk About Putin, The Weaponization of Everything, and Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine. And my name is Steve Gutterman, editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFERL. I'll be back next week for another edition of The Week Ahead in Russia, and please keep an eye out for my newsletter, The Week in Russia, which comes out most Fridays. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your questions.